Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall, and today we will be looking at When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed by Walt Whitman. I'm choosing Walt Whitman today. While there are some similarities or some themes that follow on from last week when we were looking at John Milton, I think the main reason why I decided to go with Walt Whitman is because we are pretty much on the eve of his 200th birthday. So in about, um, this is going to be published on a Saturday with luck. So if you're listening to this on the Saturday, the Friday for a Friday coming is the 200th birthday of Walt Whitman. And so I thought that would be just a great opportunity to look at Walt Whitman's work. I read him quite a bit when I was younger. One of the books of poetry that I got out from my local library would have been, um, I think, the collected poems of Walt Whitman, which is interesting in itself because Walt Whitman, he, he curated his own collected poems throughout his life in the sense that he kept on publishing the same volume of poetry leaves of grass he would he would which started off as a slim volume that he wanted people to carry in their pockets he self-published the first couple of editions and then he wrote other collections of poetry but they would always be absorbed into leaves of grass so leaves of grass became went from being a slim self-published volume to a a massive collected works sized volume of his poetry it really was his definitive book that, that he kept on padding out and there are many themes that ran throughout leaves of grass it did seem to be his great project his great project i mean part of it was to write an american bible in a sense which sounds crazy um, but that is, but but we can see lots of the aspects of his poetry that adhere to that vision. He certainly wanted to address all of America. He wanted to unify America. He wanted to create a mythology of America and a voice of America too, and just a general sense of inclusiveness within his work. I mean, we all know Walt Whitman. Most people, I remember. So I, I read a lot of Walt Whitman when I was younger, in my early twenties. And I always remember one of the first people to publish my own poetry, a gentleman called Thomas Gayust. And Thomas told me about how the poem that always made him cry whenever he read it um, was When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. And I found that really interesting. I don't really cry when I read poems, so you're not going to hear me sobbing. I always hear people giving accounts of, of, of being brought to tears by poems. So I only get brought to tears by art when someone dies in a film. Especially a dog or something like that. That's that's when I get brought to tears. Now, I can totally understand why someone would be brought to tears by this poem, especially people who have experienced death in their lives. Um, this poem is written pretty much, it's what we would call an elegy, but has elements of the pastoral as well. But it's a poem that's been written by some poets that we've looked at, at least one. So John Milton wrote a pastoral elegy called Lycidas. And... Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote a an, another one um, called Adonai. And the pastoral elegy combines elements of the elegy, which is a poem of grief, normally follows a certain routine where it sort of starts off with the um with the the, the voice of the of the the speaker um expressing their grief and blaming 
blaming the, the the person who has died for passing away but there's normally a resolution that happens at the end and so this is part of a pastoral elegy which which mixes it with the form of the pastoral which is normally a, a sort of rural ideal sometimes a song to a, a beloved the pastoral elegy has its own little aspects of the form and i normally go over the form after i've read the poem but i'm just going to go over some of this now because it makes it easier for you guys i guess it normally features an invocation of the muse um, so so that's when someone calls upon the gods to to, to give them the gift of poetry it also continues it, it has the idea of of addressing nature and comparing the life and the death of the person who has died to nature and there's also a sequence of the sort of body passing through nature as well which is in here in this poem and finally there is a sense of um um again that sense of blaming blaming the the uh blaming the the, the person who has died and then finally there is a, a a sense of resolution normally within nature as well so it doesn't always adhere to that formula but it adheres to quite a bit of that formula we'll give some historical background to walt whitman his life and the historical background of his poem as well then we'll read out the poem which is quite a long one and then we will um before we go off on one before we wander off on one um we'll look at the formal aspects of the poem as well after we've read it so some things about walt whitman's life he's def definitely seen as a poet of america a great inclusive poet of america he was an abolitionist he was sympathetic to women's issues and of course he was he was a gay man um some people say he might have had relationships with women but he certainly had relationships with men many passionate affairs with men men who normally ended up being around the age of 20 as well um they didn't seem to every time uh, the relationship seemed to end he's to find another 20 year old man even when he was getting quite old himself so he, he was also a poet he came from a working class background and he was a poet of the working class and a man of the working class and while he he certainly fraternized um with some great literary figures and became friends of them such as emerson who was a great influence on his work as well as uh, henry david thoreau he met but other literary figures too um he um he always had this connection to the working class and this changed when the civil war took place the american civil war so his earlier volumes of leaves of grass they were very much these ideas about unifying america america is one great thing he celebrated the body as well he wrote many works some works about heterosexual love that were seen as very explicit but he also wrote works about homosexual love as well and while they never seemed to get in as much trouble as his poems about heterosexual love they didn't seem to run as foul of the censors of his day um mainly because they were more about sort of holding hands and embraces and kisses whereas his his heterosexual poems um because he was a poet of nature and a poet of the body were a bit more detailed in their sexual aspects and so those were the ones that were singled out which seemed to act as a good decoy for his um poems of homosexuality um there were later times though when it was more of it actually homosexuality i don't know what the attitude to it was at the time but moral panics about homosexuality happened a bit later on so it could be that homo homosexuality was more tolerated for want of a better word at the time so he had a first part of his life where he worked as a teacher he worked as a journalist as well from a very young age from think, think about from the age of 12 he worked at print works at newspapers and he was writing articles from the age of 14 so his journalism career became started off very early he was also very concerned with how 
because he was so acquainted with the process of printing, he was always very involved in making his books and was always revising them until the very, very last moment. He never thought a poem was published until that final um, printing process was set in order and the book was, was collated and published. In fact, he, he would himself sew extra pages into books sometimes when he felt poems had to be added to them. And then the book would be complete and that's when his poetry felt published. So he had that printer's background. So he was writing all his life. He had a working class background. Um, he, he, he then became a sort of literary type. He hobnobbed with the literary types in New York. He, he hung about in a beer house called the Faff or the P-F-A-F-F. -F. I think that's how it was spelt, the Pfaff. I don't know, in which many other bohemians in New York would hang out as well. And there was also a sort of a, um, an, a regular evening there that was ultimately, I guess, what you, you would call their, their, their gay night. I think it was called the Fred Gray Society. I'll have to look at my notes now for a second to see if I was right. It was called um, a kind of gay night that was called the Fred Gray Association. And I think that's where he blossomed as a gay man, had one of his first great loves with a guy called Fred Vaughan. He went on to have a relationship with someone after the Civil War. I think he had a relationship with a Confederate soldier who was injured during the Civil War as well. And then he met another another poet who I think was called, not poet, sorry. He was a conductor called Peter Doyle, who was an ex-Confederate soldier and an Irish immigrant about 21 years old. Whitman was about 40-something then, and they had a relationship as well. Let, let's get back to his career. So he published a few editions of Leaves of Grass, about two or three editions before the Civil War happened, and that changed everything. And a lot about his idea of this unity of America, all of a sudden there was a massive schism within America, of course. And he was someone who used to do the rounds of the hospitals talking to people, often just sort of injured blue-collar workers. So he'd already learned to sort of not be shocked around injuries, but also to show great empathy for people that were injured, and he always preferred the company of working-class people. Now, after these, these tours, he after the, the outbreak of the Civil War, um, he, he went down to the, the battlefields and spent a lot of time around them, and he volunteered as a nurse, especially around Washington, and so, again, he saw the great toll of the injuries of these men. And then when he heard his brother, George, I think it was George, was injured, he um, headed down to Fredericksburg, the site of the battlefield, to see if his brother was okay. Um, and his brother was fine. He had a sort of minor facial injury. But he saw, to his great horror, so this poet of the body, this poet of the unity of the body and the poet of the unity of a country, who had already seen many injured men and sort of empathised greatly with them, he saw something that truly horrified him, because there's always an extra horror to see, I guess, and that was a pile of severed limbs, amputated limbs, on the back of a carriage, and the carriage, a horse-drawn carriage, about to be led away. Obviously the sort of product of, of the men that had been injured in, bat in battle, who'd had their limbs just sawn off to, to keep them alive. And so he saw this, and I think this had a real effect on him. Now, he wrote a lot of anti lot of war poems and collected them in a volume called Drum Taps. And they were eventually absorbed into Leaves of Grass. Um, he carried on writing, and then he wrote even more poems called Sequel to Drum Taps, again, absorbed into Leaves of Grass in the end. And one of his poems was When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. 
And the thing about this poem is it was written very shortly, shortly after the end of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, the president, was assassinated. And so there was this sort of the, the relief of the war followed by the heartache of the president. So I guess the, the, the beginning of the coming together of the country, but this sort of also this great event that was heartbreak for a lot of the nation, especially for the people of the North. Um, I think I've said a fair bit about Whitman. He's another chap who had an interesting life that I could speak about all the time. I won't move on to sort of what happened to his life after the Civil War um, and and what happened after that. I think I'm just going to go straight into the poem and then we'll talk about the, the style of the bat poem. It's a long poem. It's going to take about probably, I just timed it before I, I started recording. I read it out. And I reckon it will take about 12 to 15 minutes. Um, feel free to read it yourself in your own time or skip it or whatever. I'll put the time signatures up as I normally do with this. Um, so, yes, I will read the poem out. And then I'll talk a bit more about the poem from a stylistic sense and what the poem was about. The kind of elegy it is, how it connects with the rest of his work. But his particular technical tricks that he uses and how, how important they are for modern poetry and post-war poetry as well. When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed by Walt Whitman 1. When lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed And the great star early drooped in the western sky in the night I mourned, and yet shall mourn with ever-returning spring Ever-returning spring, trinity sure to me you bring Lilac blooming perennial and drooping star in the west and I thought of him I love. 2. O oh, powerful western fallen star, O oh, shades of night, O oh, moody tearful night, O oh, great star disappeared over black murk that hides the star, O oh, cruel hands that hold me powerless, O oh, helpless soul of me, O oh, harsh surrounding cloud that will not free my soul. 3. In the dooryard, fronting an old farmhouse near the white-washed railings, past the lilac bush tall growing with heart-shaped leaves of rich green, with many a pointed blossom rising delicate with the perfume strong I love, with every leaf a miracle, and from this bush in the dooryard, with delicate coloured blossoms and heart-shaped leaves of rich green, a sprig with its flower I break. 4. In the Swamp in secluded recesses a shy and hidden bird is warbling a song. Solitary the thrush, the hermit withdrawn to himself, avoiding the settlements, sings by himself a song. Song of the bleeding throat, death's outlet, song of life. For well, dear brother, I know, if thou wast not granted to sing, thou wouldst surely die. 5. Over the breast of the spring, the land, the mid-cities, amid lanes and through old woods, where lately the violets peeped from the ground, spotting the grey debris, amid the grass in the fields, each side of the lanes, passing the endless grass, passing the yellow-speared wheat, every grain from its shroud in the dark brown fields uprisen, passing the apple tree, blows of white and pink in the orchards, carrying a corpse to where it shall rest in the grave. Night and day journeys a coffin. 6. 
Coffin that passes through lanes and streets, through day and night and with the great cloud darkening the land, with the pomp of the in-looped flags of the cities draped in black, with the show of the states themselves as of crepe-veiled women standing, with processions long and winding in the flambeaux of the night, with the countless torches lit, with a silent sea of faces and the unbared heads, with the waiting depot, the arriving coffin and the sombre faces, with dirges through the night, with a thousand voices rising strong and solemn, with all the mournful voices of the dirges poured around the coffin, the dim-lit churches and the shuddering organs where amid these you journey with a tolling tolling bells perpetual clang here coffin that slowly passes i give you my sprig of lilac seven not for you for one alone blossoms and branches green to coffins all i bring for fresh as the morning thus would i chant a song for you o sane and sacred death all over bouquets of roses o oh death i cover you over with roses and early lilies but mostly and now the lilac that blooms the first copious i break i break the sprigs from the bushes with loaded arms i come pouring for you for you and the coffins all of you o oh death eight o oh western orb sailing the heaven now i know that you must have meant as a month since i walked as i walked in silence the transparent shadowy night as i saw you had something to tell us as you bent to me night after night as you drooped from the sky low down as if to my side while the other stars all looked on as we wandered together the solemn night for something i know not what kept me from sleep as the night advanced and i saw in the rim of the west how full you were of woe as i stood on the rising ground in the breeze in the cool transparent night as i watched where you passed and was lost in the neverward black of the night as my soul in its trouble dissatisfied sank as where you sad orb concluded dropped in the night and was gone nine sing on there in the swamp o singer bashful and tender i hear your notes i hear your call i hear i come presently i understand you but a moment i linger and the lustrous star has detained me the star my departing comrade holds and detains me Ten. Oh, how shall i warble myself for the dead one there i loved and how shall i deck my song for the large sweet soul that has gone and what shall my perfume be for the grave of him i love sea winds blown from east and west blown from the eastern sea and blown from the western sea till there on the prairies meeting these and with these and the breath of my chant i'll perfume the grave of him i love eleven oh what shall i hang on the chamber walls and what shall the pictures be that i hang on the walls to adorn the burial house of him i love pictures of growing spring and farms and homes with the fourth month eve at sundown and the grey smoke lucid and bright with floods of the yellow gold of the gorgeous indolent sinking sun burning expanding the air with the fresh sweet herbage underfoot and the pale green leaves of the trees prolific in the distance the flowing glaze the breast of the wither with a wind-dapple here and there with ranging hills on the banks with many a line against the sky and shadows and a city at hand with dwellings so dense and stacks of chimneys and all the scenes of life in the workshops and the workmen homeward returning twelve lo 
body and soul, this land, my own Manhattan with spires and the sparkling and hurrying tides and the ships, the varied and ample land, the south and the north in the light, Ohio's shores and flashing Missouri, and over the far-spreading prairies covered with grass and corn. Lo, the most excellent sun so calm and haughty, the violet and purple morn with just-felt breezes, the gentle soft-born measureless light, the miracles spreading, bathing all, the fulfilled noon, the coming eve delicious, the welcome night and the stars over my city shining all, enveloping man and land. 13. Sing on, sing on, you grey-brown bird. Sing from the swamps, the recesses, pour your chant from the bushes, limitless out of the dusk, out of the cedars and pines. Sing on, dearest brother, warble your reedy song, loud human song, with voice of uttermost woe. O liquid and free and tender, O wild and loose to my soul, O wondrous singer. You only I hear, yet the star holds me, but will soon depart, yet the lilac with mastering odour holds me. 14. Now while I sat in the day and looked forth in the close of the day with its light and the fields of spring and the farmers preparing their crops, in the large unconscious scenery of my land with its lakes and forests, in the heavenly aerial beauty after the perturbed winds and the storms, under the arching heavens of the afternoon swift passing and the voices of children and women, the many moving sea-tides and i saw the ships how they sailed and the summer approaching with richness and the fields all busy with labour and the infinite separate houses how they all went on each with its meals and minutiae of daily usages and the streets how their throbbings throbbed in the city's pent low and then and there passing upon them all and among them all enveloping me with the rest appeared the cloud appeared the long black trail and i knew death its fort and the sacred knowledge of death then with the knowledge of death as walking one side of me and the fort of death close walking the other side of me and i in the middle as with companions and as holding the hands of companions i fled forth to the hiding receiving night that talks not down to the shores of the water the path of the swamp in the dimness to the solemn shadowy cedars and ghostly pines so still and the singer so shy to the rest received me the grey-brown bird i know received us comrades three and he sang the carol of death and a verse for him i love from deep secluded recesses from the fragrant cedars and the ghostly pine so still came the carol of the bird and the charm of the carol wrapped me as i held as if by their hands my comrades in the night and the voice of my spirit tallied the song of the bird Come lovely and soothing death undulate round the world serenely arriving arriving in the day in the in the night to all to each sooner or later delicate death praise be the fathomless universe for life and joy and for objects and knowledge curious and for love sweet love but praise 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 for the sure and winding arms of cool enfolding death dark mother always gliding near with soft feet have none chanted for thee a chant of fullest welcome then i chant it for thee i glorify thee above all i bring thee a song and when thou must indeed come come unfalteringly approach strong deliver us when it is so when thou hast taken them i joyously sing the dead lost in the loving floating ocean of thee laved in the flood of thy bliss o death from me to thee glad serenades
dances for thee i propose saluting thee adornments and feastings for thee and the sights of the open landscape and the high-spread sky are fitting and life and the fields and the huge and thoughtful night the night in silence under many a star the ocean shore and the husky whispering wave whose voice i know and the soul returning to thee o vast and well-veiled death and the body gratefully nestling close to thee over the tree-tops i float thee a song over the rising and sinking waves over the myriad fields and the prairies wide over the dense packed cities all and the teeming wharves and ways i float this carol with joy with joy to thee o death fifteen to the tally of my soul loud and strong kept up the grey-brown bird with pure deliberate notes spreading filling the night loud in behinds in the pines and the cedars dim clear in the freshness moist and the swamp perfume and i with my comrades there in the night while my sight that was bound in my eyes unclosed as to long panoramas of visions and i saw askant the armies i saw as in noiseless dreams hundreds of battle flags borne through the smoke of the battles and pierced with missiles i saw them and carried hither and yon through the smoke and torn and bloody and at last but a few shreds left on the staffs and all in silence and the staffs all splintered and broken i saw battle corpses myriads of them and the white skeletons of young men i saw them i saw the debris and debris of all the slain soldiers of the war and i saw they were not as was fought they themselves were fully at rest they suffered not the living remained and suffered the mother suffered and the wife and the child and the musing comrades suffered and the armies that remained suffered passing the visions passing the night passing unloosing the hold of my comrades hands passing the song of the hermit bird and the tallying song of my soul victorious song death's outlet song yet varying ever altering song as low and wailing yet clear the notes rising and falling flooding the night sadly sinking and fainting as warning and warning and yet again bursting with joy covering the earth and filling the spread of the heaven as that powerful psalm in the night i heard from recesses passing I leave thee, lilac, with heart-shaped leaves. I leave thee there in the dooryard, blooming, returning with spring. I cease from my song for thee, for my gaze on thee in the west, fronting the west, communing with thee. O comrade lustrous with silver face in the night, yet each to keep and all retrievements out of the night, the song, the wondrous chant of the grey-brown bird and the tallying chant the echo aroused in my soul with the lustrous and drooping star with the countenance full of woe with the holders holding my hand nearing the call of the bird comrades mine and i in the midst and their memory ever to keep for the dead i loved so well for the sweetest wisest soul of all my days and lands and this for his dear sake lilac and star and bird twined with the chant of my soul there in the fragrant pines and the cedars dusk and dim so that was when lilacs last in a dooryard bloomed by by walt whitman i didn't cry <laughs> i didn't cry it's a beautiful poem though it is an elegy it, it has those aspects of a pastoral elegy 
Now, um, I'm going to look over just a few bits about technical. Well, let's look at. I don't really have to say too much about what the poem was about because I think the poem in itself it's written in a language that we can all understand today. This is something we found in the, in a lot of Victorian poetry that that people were beginning to write in a language that people could understand, and this was something that was popularised by the Romantic poets as well. If we remember, Wordsworth also wanted to write poems that the common person, the common man, or the common woman could understand. And so Whitman very much wrote in that tradition. You get the sense of the romantics as an influence in his work, but you also get the sense of other things. And perhaps the biggest influence here, apart from great orators and essayists like Emerson, his friend, um, you, you get a sense of another great work of literature coming through. The King James Bible. So the long, undrimed, but musical and rhythmic lines are very much from the King James Bible. It's something that William Blake, very much a disciple of Milton and an admirer of Milton, didn't know Milton, obviously, but he wrote in a similar style in his epic poems and in another poem called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, when he abandoned meter and rhyme. And it's certainly something that just, it comes from that, some of those songs, such as the Song of Solomon in, in the King James Bible. There is another, there's another technique that is used in this poem as well, which is parataxis. Now, other poets would go on, they use this technique as borrowed from the King James Bible. Um, so it is when a sort of clause is, is repeated at the beginning of each line. Um, so, for instance, in stanza number eight a western orb sailing the heaven now i know that you must have meant as a month since i walked and then as i walked in silence the transparent shadowy night as i saw you had something to tell as you bent to me night after night as you dropped from the sky as you drooped from the sky low down as if to my side while the others as we wandered as the night advanced as i stood as i watched as my soul so that as my as i that's called parataxis where a sentence is sort of expanded almost indefinitely just with that little clause that keeps on getting repeated at the beginning of each line if you are a fan of Allen Ginsberg who was very much influenced by William Blake and very much influenced by Walt Whitman and also I think read according to his diaries read the entirety of the bible before he wrote Howl um, you can see you know when in the poem Howl who begins in the first part pretty much every line has begun with the word who and it just carries on without a full stop a lot of the time. So that's that's the technique of parataxis, which ultimately comes. Well, it's, it's it's a rhetorical technique, but in English literature and poetry, it's often its original inspiration is from the King James Bible. So he's using this sort of religious text. Now we go back to the idea about the the American, you know, writing the American Bible and borrowing from the Bible, but at the same time writing something new, this inclusive poetry. And the poem itself reads as something which is trying to bring everything back together. It is mourning Lincoln, but you, but he himself says, this lilac isn't just for you, it is for all the deaf. And then it's the sort of almost to slover, smother, to, to offer to death as he sings to death. So he speaks of the, the man he has lost, but you get this feeling he's speaking to many men. He may have loved Lincoln, but I don't think he met Lincoln, but he must have loved many of the men that he met 
um, many of the soldiers and many of the working men that he met in different ways. He was seen as a very avuncular fellow. He was known as old man among the soldiers in the hospitals. But they, they found that they, they, they all enjoyed his company and he had many very affectionate sort of letter writing acquaintances with many of them. But he must have also sort of seen soldiers die and he must have lost friends and, and lost people that, that he was very fond of. So I feel that this, this sprig of lilac is not just grabbed for, for Lincoln. And Lincoln, it's very much Lincoln's coffin that is traveling through America and being mourned. And we get that sense of, yes, he has died, but we also, through that mourning, America is coming together. Now, it could be that many people in the southern states weren't mourning him, but still he gives this idea of thousands coming together, their songs coming together. He evokes, yes, the, the rural place. He evokes the song of the thrush, which seems to be playing the role of the muse. I think the invocation of the muse is personified in the thrush and the song of the thrush in the swamp and how he adds to that song in the end. So there's the song of the thrush that must carry on, almost this idea of nature and the life that must carry on, but how we must sing to death as well. It's really interesting how he addresses death in the poem. Um, many cultures often say that you have to have a place at the table for death or that you have to have a place at the table for evil as well. And certainly he's, he's including death. Death is included. And this is what many of the great religions do, of course. They find a way of including death. I mean, one of perhaps one of the most famous examples is the Day of the Dead in Mexico. And we as a current contemporary culture, we don't seem to include death. We seem to run from death quite a bit. So it's really interesting that death is really included. Death is part of this inclusion, this coming together, this healing that must happen after the war and after the death of Lincoln. Um... And so he adds his own song to that song. He almost translates the song. He twines round it um, at, at the end of the poem. Now, and it is a song to death. He also, what other aspects of the the, the, the pastoral and the elegy are there? Well, there is the, that I think Lincoln is, is compared to the sun at one point when he talks about that great western orb that seems um, as it's to his left to be walking with him for a moment before it m must set. So he is comparing nature. He's doing that, that that aspect of the elegy where something, or the pastoral elegy, where something is is from nature is taken and compared to the life of the person that is being mourned. Um, that's very much a part of it. But the resolution comes again at the end of the poem. Um, the end of a poem being a resolution made with death itself and how life must carry on, but how death must be addressed and how glorious death is. And that's a strange thing, you know, after all the deaths of these young men. But he points out at the end, it is not it is not the young men that suffer. They're not suffering. When he speaks about the body parts and the skeletons and the wounds. Um, but once they are dead, you know, the piles of bodies, none of those are suffering. It is the living, it's the mothers, it is the, the loved ones, it is the children that suffer. That is the suffering. But it's not necessarily that death has wounded these people themselves. <laughs> death himself must come to everyone it is more that the, the death has, has wounded the living the ones that aren't part of the war or the ones that, did, that lived through it that is that is sort of who death has hurt and yet he sings praise to death despite being hurt perhaps because yes he said like, death is not actually harming the people that have died death is just doing doing its job i guess <laughs> I'm not really saying that much about this poem. One reason why is because I'm going to be cutting this podcast short because I have to run out of the house to do stuff in a minute, unfortunately. 
And I guess the poem itself takes up a big amount of the recording, doesn't it, when I read a long poem. I don't think there's as much to say about the poem other than that kind of style, the biblical, paratactical style, and giving the details about about Whitman's life beforehand. Um, so I think, even though I've not really said that much, that's probably the shortest analysis I've done. I am gonna I am gonna leave it there, and I'm gonna wander off on one now. And I'm gonna wander off on one. Um, I normally have a phone with me with a recording with Ric Flair going woo because woo is an acronym for wander off on one but also it sort of seems like a wonderful signal to me that oh yes no one can take me seriously after I've played a, a little bit of a wrestler's gimmick um, because I'm not meant to be taken seriously in the later part of the podcast when I wander off on one but I don't have my recording so I'm just gonna have to kind of lean back and do it myself for one week early so woo that wasn't very good was it I might just like I might add it. No, I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna add a recording afterwards in post. I'm gonna leave that as a, as a testament to my failure as a, as a podcaster and wrestler. Do you know that Walt Whitman liked wrestling as well? Well, after he had a stroke, he met a young man <laughs> in his twenties who helped him with his recuperation, um, and he and part of his training to gain strength again from his stroke was to wrestle this young man, and they would come home with bleeding and stuff <laughs> you know why i'm laughing don't you i mean we've all seen women in love i just i love this idea walt whitman oh i know something you can do to help me help me overcome this great ailment of mine young man <laughs> you seem like a strong young man i need to get stronger let's have a wrestle so um yeah he, had, he liked wrestling he liked wrestling later in his life he was a big strong man though walt whitman well over six foot um a little something about Leaves of Grass, actually. Oh, look, I'm not wandering off on one at all, am I? I'm just carrying on. Um, he made a lot of his image. In the first sort of copy of Leaves of Grass, he was, uh, there was a photograph of him, or, and it was, there was no author. His name wasn't stated, and you think, oh, that's not very narcissistic of him. That's really kind of like, wow, he's just like letting the work out there. No, there's a massive image of him dressed up like a working-class gentleman. And he also has um, the quote from Emerson, which is a famous quote saying when he received the manuscript saying, I congratulate you at the beginning of a great career. And he just whacked that on the back, even though it's a private letter. And then the other good reviews that were quoted from um, were his own reviews of his own work. <laughs> and then he, kid he did at the same time, he included some bad reviews underneath that. Um, he didn't. I, I guess that's what Instagram people do now. And now I'm wandering off on one. You fake it till you make it, don't you? That's what you do. Like if you're an Instagrammer or something, like take photographs of yourself like you are already famous, and then you will become famous. Uh, if you're a YouTuber, do the same film. Film yourself and address the camera as if you are already famous, and you will become famous. And so maybe that's what Walt Whitman did. Um, I want to wander off on one about Whit uh, one connection with Ginsburg and and Whitman's idea of the body. And how the body is like this important locus between ourselves as a nation and our, our relationships with each other. If you can find it, there's a, a, I'll have to put a link in the description of the episode, but there's a, there's a video of Allen Ginsberg in London, in a garden in London. I think it's called Our Sunflower, which is one of his poems, which is also inspired by William Blake. And Allen Ginsberg is sat in a garden. And he says something like um, he's talking to a camera and it's the novelty of talking to a camera. I think we all have that feeling if ever you talk to a camera, you're staring into its mechanical innards. 
and um, it's quite a strange sort of dehumanizing experience. And the interesting thing about what Ginsburg does, because I think it does, like we've already talked about Ginsburg's connection to Whitman. Whitman's writing about gay love for a start, but also Whitman's use of a long lines and parataxis, which is what Ginsburg borrowed for his own poetry. But Ginsburg addresses the camera saying, I am here I am, let's not forget this, in a garden with the sound of birdsong and traffic around me. And I'm in my body and I'm talking into this camera and you are there into in your body watching the TV tube, he says. And it's in very, you know, important that we don't, that we remember. He kind of says that we remember that we're here in our bodies right now and don't get pulled into this world of pure imagery. And I found that really interesting. And I like playing it to my students as well. So this idea of actually someone who's on the other side of the camera recording a message, speaking to you, you're listening to my podcast right now. But I think there's something about what I like about podcasts compared to the visual media is especially now when you're looking at visual media, you already get kind of lost in an interface and the interface kind of becomes your environment whereas listening to a podcast you could just be walking about right now doing the dishes or whatever and you still have your own visual environment that you're in hopefully you're not scrolling through your phone or something stupid like that because you will not be paying attention to anything i say um you know normally for a podcast it's great because you are still in your visual world whereas when you're confronted by the image on a screen it sort of completely dominates your visual environment and you very much partially think that you're there in that image. You lose that sense of where you are, your physical place in the world. And I think Whitman's poetry was very much always about remembering our bodies, remembering our physical place in the world. And I think what Ginsburg is saying there is as well, it's, it's just as inherent, if not more, um, if not more helpful now in the age of social media, when we're all walking around staring at something in our palm and getting lost in it, that we're forgetting about our bodies. And I think one of the best things to do is to remember your body. If ever you're getting too caught up and distracted in your surfing or in anything else, remember your body and the place it is in and your immediate environment and what your senses are telling you. I know they call this mindfulness, but it's still really interesting. I think that if we could get in the habit of doing that, especially when on social media and the interwebs. I think that might really help us. And especially if you're having an argument with someone on the Twitters or the Facebooks, then remember that they're there in their body and that might help you. Because sometimes when I get in an, an argument with someone, I often associate them with whatever they're doing in their profile picture. So if they're standing there, I don't know, about to bite into a hot dog, I imagine that person with the hot dog in their hand, standing over me, sort of going, ha ha, your poetry's rubbish, and I think your pub podcast is crap as well, ha 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 ha, doing, and doing their face they're making when they're about to bite into their hot dog, let's just say. But they're not doing that at all. They're hunched over, maybe, a computer screen. They're just there with their eyes looking slightly glazed in the light of their computer screen. Or they're staring at their phone, and they're again hunched over, not aware of their environment. Or maybe this person who is hitting you with these missives these acerbic missives, they might be on the toilet. They might be on the toilet with their little thumbs on their phone going, with a little look on their face going, as they're just, it's fun. How does it feel if you imagine them in, that, in their own environment? Imagine yourself in your own environment reading this horrible tweet or this horrible message and then imagine them in their environment, possibly on the toilet. Does that make things better? Does that change it? If we kind of disqualify the visual interface that, that negotiates the two interactions does that make you feel more in common with the person even though your opinions divide you when you take away this visual interface and imagine you both in the real physical world 
I think that's what Whitman did. I think that's what he did with his poetry. I think he tried to really create the body and the environment as the great leveller. Um, yeah. And I'm going to leave it there. I don't. I know I didn't do a lot of analysis in that episode, and I'm I'm really sorry about that. I should have done a bit more. It's quite a hard after reading out the poem. It's quite hard to revisit points of it because it's such a long and vast poem. I just hope you enjoyed the reading of it. I guess, and I hope you enjoyed the poem. And um, I'm sorry if I made you cry. I'm pretty sure I didn't. But just in case, maybe I made you cry for the wrong reasons. That's it for this episode. I think. Sorry if it's a short one. Um. If you ever you want to do me a thank you, firstly, firstly, thank you to everyone who who has shared, given a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Anyone who shared it on social media, I, I've I've had nothing but really nice things said to me, so I I feel very blessed. I know that if the podcast does grow, eventually someone will be sat on that toilet, thumbing your podcast is a load of rubbish as I uh, you know at me while I imagine their profile picture where they've got a hot dog. I hope the first person to really diss me at this my podcast on social media because it hasn't happened yet. Poet Nile Twitter P O E T N I A W L. If you do want to diss me, um, it'd be amazing if they have a good grace to sort of change their profile picture to themselves about to bite into a hot dog before dissing me. That'd be a. I would, in some ways, I would love that more than any of the five star reviews. But thank you for the five star reviews and all for all the nice words. You can also email me at rustysonnets at gmail dot com. Rustysonnets at gmail dot com if you wanna chat to me that way yeah that's it so yeah thank you everyone who's done all these things and if you want to help me then please do share it give it a good review on itunes whatever um i, I really appreciate all the love and the sharing that's happened with this podcast and I, i'll be really grateful if any more love and sharing happens other than that as always have a good one wherever you are and enjoy the sunshine if it is sunny wherever you are thank you bye bye <laughs>